Coming up today, how Sweden bungled its coronavirus response, anti-vaxxers and the pandemic collide, and we explain how pubs can reopen safely. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Demperton, and joining me this week are Natasha Bernal. Hello. Amit Katwala. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when largely peaceful anti-racism protests were met with a brutal police response across the United States. Videos of police attacking protesters have been viewed hundreds of millions of times on social media. This was also the week when tens of thousands of demonstrators in Hong Kong have defied a ban to stage a mass vigil for the victims of the 1989 Tiananmen Square crackdown in Beijing. The latest events come as the Chinese government is drawing up a new security law for Hong Kong, a move that threatens to raise tensions even further. And it was also the week when a scientific paper that led the World Health Organization to halt trials into the effect that hydroxychloroquine has on COVID-19 patients was retracted because of suspicions that the data within the paper were inaccurate. Trials into the drug have now been restarted, but people are wondering how such a dubious study became so influential. And finally, it was the week when the UK government announced that face coverings would become mandatory on public transport from June the 15th. These could be as simple as a scarf or a bandana tied around the head, but they must cover both the nose and mouth. It feels like we've had a lot of weeks in recent months that have felt like a year in their own right. There has been so much news. So many things have happened since we last recorded the podcast. We're going to do our best to focus on a few of the stories this week. But before we get to that, uh, Amit, can I get a magpie update, please? Yeah, so I've not I've not seen the magpies around much later. The the other day uh, there was a a very menacing looking crow kind of like poking around the nest, and you could see the crow kind of like looking for weaknesses, like the Velociraptors in Jurassic Park, like testing the fences. Uh, so anyway, I'm not proud of this, but I, I shouted at the crow uh, and it flew away. <laughs> uh, what, what did you shout? Did you make like I, a crow noise? No, or? I, did, I didn't want the crow to come to come to me. I didn't want to try and become an ally with the crow. So I just shouted, hey, and then uh, the crow flew off and I've not seen it around since. So I showed that crow who's boss. Uh, <laughs> you protected the magpies, the magpies. Late, lately either. So God knows where they're at. they are. The crow may have already eaten them. I don't, I don't know. Apparently in, in related bird news, the reason that people might have been noticing even louder and more frequent uh, bird calls is because there's been so little rain in the UK recently that the ground is very, very hard, which is making it difficult for the birds to get at the worms. So they're fighting furiously for what little food there is available. Hence, they're making a lot more calls. There's a bonus fact before we get to the actual facts. Natasha, what did you learn this week? I was thinking uh, a lot about that man who was sentenced to death via Zoom. Uh, Still, I I don't know why. It's just sort of, I guess there are a lot of jokes around that which kind of bad. But anyway, um, people who read those headlines might have found the link from tech to death quite strange. But um, there was a huge, wonderful Twitter thread that came out this week uh, showing that this sort of thing has happened throughout history. So you could once take the tube in 1863 to watch a public hanging in London. So the last one was in 1868, a few years later. Or you could read about the last execution by guillotine in France in 1977 on a CFAX, which is the world's first teletext information service. So that was that all those things were happening at the same time. So in fact, the interaction between you know, rather archaic and barbaric acts that we might think are kind of 
uh, horrible and uh, being able to watch them and see them and visit them and go and attend them in quite high um, ways because of tech, basically. So it's a bit of a weird one. Cheerful. Amit? Uh, I learned that if a whale washes up on a British beach, the ruling monarch gets first dibs on the carcass, uh, according to an ancient statute. So whales are classed as royal fish, along with sturgeons. So the king has the right to the head and the queen has the right to the tail. Has anyone pointed out to the royals that they're not a fish? Uh, yeah, I don't know if they, they're quite as hot on the fish-mammal distinction back in the 17th century or whenever this law was written. I'd, I'd like to test that one out. I mean, we've seen Her Majesty out riding a little horse um, in recent days, which has truly cheered the nation. Maybe we could cheer her further by directing her to a whale carcass so that she can claim the tail. <laughs> she can dive in, yeah. Fantastic. Matt, what did you learn this week? So you mentioned the good weather uh, that we've been having the last month. So I learned that the, in the UK, the May just gone was the sunniest month on record. So we saw 266 hours of sunshine, which beat the previous record of 265. So it just eked in there. And that previous record was in June 1957. And this follows the wettest ever February. And it's part of a pattern of much more extreme weather that we're seeing as the climate heats up. So good weather in May you know, bad long-term trajectory. I like the idea of meteorologists and climate scientists sitting there anxiously waiting for one more hour of sunshine to tick up so that they could claim a new record. Yeah, it really came down to the line. So I bet, I wonder if they were kind of secretly glad that it kind of just eked over there. I mean, it definitely is helpful for communicating the sheer weirdness of the last couple of months in terms of weather for it to be the sunniest spring on record. Uh, I learned this week that the world's oldest bottle of cognac sold for £118,000 at auction this week just gone. The spirit dates back to 1762 and has been stored in a family cellar for the past 140 years and apparently it still tastes just fine. How do they know? That's some old cognac. They, they don't know uh, that. <laughs> you can't point. That. I have nothing to back up the assertion that it tastes good, although the assertion was made by the auction house that probably took a large commission on the sale. So, hmm. Uh, Podcast pub quiz. Shushman writes in to say he very much enjoyed the first Wired Podcast virtual pub quiz that we did a couple of weeks ago. 100% would do it again, he wrote. Well, good news because we're 100% doing another one. You can join us live on Wednesday July 1st at 8pm London time to watch the Wired podcast team compete for the Trivia Crown, which is currently held by Matt Reynolds. You can play along at home as well and ask us any burning questions you might have. The first show was a big success and we want to make this one even bigger and better. You can head to tiny.cc forward slash Wired Quiz 2, all one word, and the numerical 2, not the word 2, it's really easy to read out to register your place. Matt Reynolds, what was that URL? Well, James Templeton, that URL was tiny.cc forward slash wired quiz two. That's the uh, digit two and not written out. Thank you very much. And we'll be reminding you a couple more times. You've got plenty of time to get signed up and get the drinks in. Okay, our first story this week, Amit, is about Sweden, which in the world of coronavirus lockdowns has taken a rather different approach. Yeah, that's right. Uh, You know, in the UK, we've seen a lot of headlines 
a lot of anti-lockdown commentators kind of pointing to Sweden, which has uh, has basically not locked down in any way like the rest of Europe. Um, so, you know, while everyone in Italy and France and Spain and the UK were kind of inside, pubs were closed, in Stockholm, restaurants and bars remained open, children were still going to school and people were only advised to stay at home if they felt ill rather than whole households being put into self-isolation like they are here if one person has symptoms. Um Sweden was lauded by, you know, certain sections of the press for this approach, particularly in the early weeks of the pandemic when the country's death toll seemed to be remaining relatively low. Um, there are lots of arguments about a back and forth about why this might have been. Like people argued Sweden was a unique case because of its demographics or because more people live in single person households or because you don't see the kind of multi-generational family units with grandparents living with, um, you know, two generations below them, like you see in, in Italy and places like that. Um, however, in hindsight, it's clear that Sweden is not a special case. Um, as the infection rate in other countries has fallen, Sweden's has remained relatively high per capita, uh, and the country has frequently topped the daily rankings in terms of the number of deaths per capita in the last few weeks. Um, this week, um, Anders Tegnell, the man who's responsible for designing Sweden's approach to the lockdown, apologised and said the country had not done enough to prevent deaths. And so, as you said, I remember you know, in the beginning months, you know, maybe six weeks of the UK's outbreak, people were pointing to Sweden and they were saying, look, Sweden's doing fine. They don't seem to be worse than us. Everything seems to be okay. Was there a moment when things started to go wrong for Sweden? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of happened at the same time as as it happened across Europe. Uh, In February, uh, they have a week off in Sweden called, it's kind of colloquially known as a sports vacation. And a lot of Swedes kind of travel to go, skiing a lot of them went skiing in the alps um basically around the same time that the situation in northern italy exploded so you had a lot of kind of admittedly like younger younger swedes kind of coming back uh from italy at that point carrying the disease but even though the situation in italy was kind of quite well known there was no requirement for those returning from italy to self-isolate and although some private companies in sweden shifted to working from home a lot of public workers and a lot of school children were told that they still had to go in unless they were already feeling ill now, given what we know about an asymptomatic spread, that clearly wasn't a very good idea. Um, as well as well as kind of taking a different approach to lockdown, the Swedes seem to have been quite complacent uh, regarding some of the other stuff that other countries have done well. So like as in the UK, there was a failure to sort of prepare and ramp up testing capacity, a failure to procure protective equipment. Even now, like, you know, as of a week ago when I was reporting this story, the official advice in Sweden still only recommends face masks if you're actually working with a sick patient. So... You know, in care homes, there's no advice, official advice to wear uh, PPE um, for either the patients or the the people treating them unless they're already ill. Um, So Swedes have kind of taken a different approach based more around kind of personal responsibility and common sense uh, rather than kind of a strict lockdown kind of handed on from on high. So and and, and to be fair, you know, it's not as if it's been completely business as usual in Sweden. There, There was a big kind of drop off in movement numbers as measured by kind of phone connections and, and maps and all the kind of data that we've been using, even without an official lockdown. But the difference is, whereas the UK, which I guess initially embarked on a similar kind of approach, eventually changed tack under political pressure and pressure from the public and the media, that didn't happen in Sweden. Yeah, it's so interesting because it seems so alien to someone sitting here. There was a huge amount of pressure on politicians around the world, basically people saying there's hundreds of people dying every day and you're not implementing a lockdown, you're not keeping people who are vulnerable safe. Obviously in the UK we had a load of uh, talk at the moment about uh, care homes and how a lot of the deaths might have been avoided had they just been a bit more prepared with PPE. So I guess I'm wondering, I mean, why was that same pressure not 
um, happening in Sweden? What happened there that, that made it so different from what we're seeing around the rest of the world? Yeah, so it's it's partly to do with the way the Swedish kind of health response is structured. So, like, if you remember here, like, the lockdown came in kind of belatedly after about a week of almost public pressure. So, like, you know, even if the government had wanted to continue along the route of not enforcing a lockdown, it would have found it very, very difficult because of mounting pressure from the public, mounting pressure from the media. But in Sweden, the expert agencies that are kind of in charge of designing this response are kept quite separate from government, like more so than than in the UK and other countries. I know here that, you know, Public Health England is in theory supposed to be very, very separate from the government. But in practice, I think the government does exert a degree of influence, whether official or unofficial, on what PHE does. Um, and I think that in Sweden, that, that separation is really, really uh, distinct and the government doesn't have a lot of power over what the Swedish Public Health Agency does. Generally, that's a good thing because it means that scientific issues don't become politicised as easily as they might do over here. Um, and the government and the opposition in Sweden have both been quite happy to kind of sit back and let the public health agency handle the outbreak. Uh, one epidemiologist we spoke to said that, you know, while public opinion was high, it was kind of good for the government not to be the ones enforcing a lockdown. It's very, you can see how public opinion, uh, when the government's enforcing lockdown, it's very easy for the public to suddenly, you know, lash out against that. So people are quite happy to go along with it. Politicians were quite happy to go along with what the public health agency was saying. Um, this guy also said that kind of Swedes are generally more trusting of authority and science than those in other countries. And that, you know, even even until recently, the, the public health agency remained broadly popular among the public. And as Tegnell, who is the kind of face of Sweden's lockdown response, uh, I guess their version of uh, Chris Whitty, um, uh, has become something of a cult figure in Sweden. So there were toasts on his birthday and people have got tattoos of his face, uh, which is interesting, but kind of part of the problem that there's almost a cult personality around Sweden's approach. And it's almost become like a... I, I was struck in the the response to the article that I wrote, how it's become almost like a bit of a culture war issue. And I was, had, you know, I, I had so many comments from people being like, you know, oh, this is wrong, you know, because this and this and this. It seems to uh, spark a really emotive response from people who aren't in Sweden and have nothing to do with Sweden because it's almost like a, like a culture war issue. But on that culture war, it is the only example in the world that we have of a stable democracy, leaving aside Brazil and other countries that haven't locked down to the same extent as as the rest of the world. Sweden is the only example of a, a reasonable country that's seemingly run well taking this approach. And people that are on that side of anti-lockdown will point to only 4,000 deaths, which compared to the UK, which is just about to tick over to 40,000 at the time of recording. That's not that bad, is it? It's not that bad in kind of absolute numbers. It's it's higher per capita. So Sweden's got a population of about 10 million versus what, about 75, 80 million in the UK. So, you know, and, and that's still better per capita than the UK. But what it's not really fair to make comparisons to you know, countries around the world. The, the comparison is particularly damning if you look at the other Nordic countries, Sweden's neighbours, which you can kind of compare on demographics and climate and, and relative wealth and healthcare systems and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and when you compare it on those terms, it doesn't look very good. So Sweden has got nine times as many deaths per million as Norway, for instance, which did lock down. Um, so, so yeah, I think the, the general consensus is that Sweden, although Sweden hasn't got as many absolute deaths as uh, other countries, it's got way more than it would have if it hadn't locked down, if it had locked down, sorry. And this brings us back to herd immunity, which was seemingly a policy that the UK pursued before um, entering sort of a, an abrupt handbrake turn and going for a full lockdown. Something that people on that sort of anti-lockdown 
side of the argument keep putting forward is herd immunity. A country like Sweden is going to be way better prepared for a second wave because there's way more cases out in the population. Everyone's got it already. So when the second wave hits, it won't have an impact because there's herd immunity. That's not the case, is it? Yeah, exactly. One of the comments I got a lot in response to the article was, well, it's not really fair to assess uh, the relative uh, success of different countries' measures until, you know, two or three years down the line. And that is that is actually a fair point, you know, that you can't really make a fair assessment until much further down the line. However, um, this argument that Sweden is better prepared for a second wave doesn't seem to be backed up by the studies that are being done. Um, a spokesperson for the public health agency who we contacted for comment told us that herd immunity was never a deliberate part of Sweden's plan. And actually, um, there was a, a study looking at antibodies in Stockholm, which was the epicenter of the outbreak in Sweden, and it found that um, only 7.3% of people in Stockholm had developed antibodies. Now, that's lower than in London, which where the figure was about 17%, so where a lockdown was in effect. So clearly, it shows that, or it seems to show that um, not as nearly as many people in Sweden were infected as was thought, even without a lockdown. Um, Now, that picture may have changed in the last few weeks. It takes a few weeks to develop antibodies, but it's not a good sign that Sweden's going to be better prepared for a second wave than the countries that did lockdown. So now, Anders Tegno has apologised. I wonder about the people that got the tattoo of his face, whether they're kind of regretting that or they're, you know, popping to the clinic to get it turned into something else. But um, there's always time to change and try a different approach. So what can Sweden do from now on to try and you know, bring itself down in these rankings and improve its situation? Yeah, there are simple things. I mean, it's kind of similar to the UK in the sense that there are things that the government is bringing in now where you're like, why wasn't this brought in three months ago, like uh, quarantine for people arriving from other countries or wearing face masks on public transport, as I mentioned earlier. Um, there, are, there are, According to Lena Einhorn, who's a virologist, who's been one of the kind of vocal critics of the Swedish approach from within Sweden, there are a lot of simple measures that could be taken to lessen the effect of a second wave or even kind of slow the spread down now. So uh, face masks for people in crowded spaces and particularly for those working in the elderly. So about half of Sweden's deaths have been in care homes. Again, that kind of echoes what we've seen here. Um, And also more testing and tracing. So, you know, they've also had problems ramping up the testing and tracing to, I think they were aiming for 100,000 tests a week rather than 100,000 tests a day because of the difference in population size, but they've struggled to hit that target. and it's it's really hard to know, like, whether it's really hard. Like, I'm not arguing that lockdowns were necessarily the right way to go or not the right way to go. But it's hard to you can't use Sweden as an example because of all these other confounding variables. Right. Maybe if they had an implemented face masks, but still maintained no lockdown, they would have had a much better result. Or if they'd shielded care homes better, they would have had well, they would have had far fewer deaths. And they, then you maybe could have said that, OK, they made the right choice not to lock down. Um, but the, the problem that they're having is that because of this kind of separation between the public health agency and the government, uh, the research to be spoke to fear that the public health agency is kind of locked into this strategy and that they're not paying attention to some data that, they, that could help them to get a handle on the spread of the disease. But there is an example of a country in the world where the public health authorities are separate from the politicians, where the response to coronavirus has been very successful. South Korea, where they've implemented really, really strict and successful track and trace systems. They've had very, very strong public health um, uh, systems in place to slow the spread of the disease, to get that R rate down. And they've never really entered a full 
lockdown in South Korea. They've done it city by city and region by region, locally, similar to what they've done in Japan and Taiwan. And it feels like the things that you're saying there, Amit, about had Sweden introduced other measures alongside this sort of widely lauded by the anti-lockdown community lack of a lockdown, then we wouldn't be talking about nine times more deaths than there had been in Norway. We'd be talking about a similar situation to South Korea or Taiwan or Japan, where there have been just a few hundred deaths. Yeah, I think actually the mistake that we the mistake that a lot of people make is to pay too much attention to the level of lockdown and the severity of the lockdown. A lockdown, and, it, and it's easy to say this with hindsight, but a lockdown is kind of a last ditch approach when you've tried to do all the other stuff and it hasn't worked. Like the, the first thing should be track and trace, rapid testing. And then, then you know, it's those stages that the UK government talked about really early on. And actually, the, the only reason we had to go into a lockdown was because uh, track and trace basically got overwhelmed almost immediately. And we couldn't do the number of tests that we needed to do. And actually, those are the key metrics of success rather than this kind of quite crude, well, did they lock down or not uh, measure podcast.wired.co.uk. I'm sure we've got some listeners in Sweden. It'd be really interesting to hear your perspectives on how your country is handling this crisis. And as we said there at the end, what it can change to get a better grip on things and to stop this death rate getting out of control even more than it is already. At the end of this pandemic, there will hopefully be a vaccine. And Matt Reynolds, this week, you've been taking a look at a problem that is likely to emerge if and when there is a vaccine, which is people not wanting to take it. That's right. So it feels like certainly on this podcast, we've been talking about a vaccine quite a lot. We talked about challenge trials last week. In, you know, in the general conversation, vaccines are figuring larger than they ever have done before. You know, just today we heard that the drug firm AstraZeneca is preparing to produce two billion doses of a vaccine and, you know, many more companies and research research groups are ploughing forward with their own plans. There are actually 10 vaccines in clinical trials right now, but I'm more interested in the people who see this stuff and they're not uh, filled with optimism, but they're actually a little bit worried about this. So this week I've been finding about what finding out what a coronavirus vaccine means for people who are really worried about the prospect that you said about getting a vaccine and perhaps having to take one. We've seen lots of examples in recent years of vaccine confidence not being in such a great place. There have been outbreaks of various diseases, particularly in the United States and in certain parts of Europe, where we know because there's a lower rate of vaccination against those diseases, we're getting higher instances of those diseases spreading through the population. So this isn't a great time for a pandemic, is it? Yeah, exactly. And it feels like a couple of years ago, everyone was talking about anti-vaxxers and as a whole thing. And um, but, but that kind of conversation got a little bit dropped when this whole thing happened. But actually, it's going to become really, really important. So what we know is that in 2018, there's a study for the European Commission. It's called the Vaccine Confidence Project. And it found that in lots of places around Europe, uh, confidence in vaccines was declining or was it kind of worryingly low levels. So in France, just 70 percent of people found that vaccines were thought, sorry, that uh, vaccines were generally safe and in Poland about three quarters of people for only three quarters of the people thought that children needed vaccines and this you know we were already seeing uh, just last year was having big impact so in August 2019 after several years of declining coverage of the MMR vaccine the UK lost its state lost its status as a country that has eliminated measles and in 2018 the year before Brooklyn saw the largest outbreak of the disease in nearly 30 years in New York City and what we kind of know is that the kind of this battle over vaccine confidence has 
confidence is most visibly waged online. So a really recent analysis of Facebook data is from scientists at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., found that anti-vaccine groups were much more effective at spreading their message to what you might call neutral Facebook groups, ones that are maybe community groups, or they're ones about food, or they're ones about, um, I don't know, you know, caring for your child. So anti-vaccine messages were much easier, found it much easier to get onto those kind of groups and be shared in those kind of groups than groups that were explicitly pro-vaccine. So in other words, the situation around vaccines was already in a pretty bad place. Then you add to that some of these basic problems that COVID-19 has caused. So in Pakistan, we've got 40 million children who are missing their poli- uh, polio vaccination because nationwide programs were halted uh, because of social distancing and isolation. And right now, vaccines globally are not necessarily in you know, the best state they have been. With coronavirus, though, I mean, that's dominated the news agenda for some time now. Even people who aren't necessarily following current affairs will have seen face masks, will have experienced fear, would have been affected in their daily lives, right? So they would have known, you know, this is something that, that is really serious, that people are afraid about this. So it, it is, does coronavirus kind of fall into the same category as polio, where people feel like it, you know, it might be a government conspiracy or whatever? Or, or will people act differently because it's so visible and there's such a big campaign trying to solve it. Yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting question. And it's one, I guess, that we don't fully know the answer to yet. So I know the Vaccine Confidence Project is already uh, polling people around whether they'll take a COVID-19 vaccine, how they feel about it. Um, my sense is that this is probably developing, right? It's probably going to be influenced by uh, how we present the vaccine, who it's given to, and, you know, the kind of conversation around it. But I think what we kind of do need to wrap our heads around a little bit and what public health authorities are contending with is that people that are vaccine hesitant, which is the word the WHO uses to describe people that could access a vaccine, but they choose not to. Not all of those people are hardline conspiracy theorists, right? They're not people necessarily that are saying, oh, it's Bill Gates, he wants to microchip us, he wants to, uh, you know, control us. There there definitely is that element in the anti-vaccine movement, but actually there's a lot more what you might call slightly more kind of boring, prosaic concerns around it. So quite often, you know, I found that these are young parents who are worried about their children's safety. They perhaps, you know, often their children that have underlying health conditions, maybe have severe allergies, maybe they have autism or something like that. Um, And quite often their parents have like good reasons to be concerned about, um, you know, their children's health and they're, you know, looking for kind of solutions. So I spoke with a bunch of people that, you you know, would describe themselves as vaccine doubters. In some cases, they say they're, you know, anti-vaxxers. And the type of fears they talked about is, you know, one woman was talking to me about the speed with which vaccines were developed and they were saying she was saying well it just seems to be going too fast to be too safe and i'm worried that companies are just trying to make profit and that might mean that they uh you know put safety at uh you know at a slightly lesser uh, value another was wondering whether it'd be effective or not and you know was saying well actually in australia they don't seem to be affected by it so and they have mandatory vaccines so you know why would we need it over here um and another point that was coming up was whether coronavirus vaccine as i just said would be mandatory or not so in the uk on May the 4th, Health Secretary Matt Hancock said it was unlikely that any vaccine would be compulsory, although earlier he had kind of you know, stoked some fears among people by saying that that option was on the table. So certainly this idea that we might be subjected to a vaccine is something that people that are worried are, are certainly thinking about. There is obviously like a, a, a key kind of minim- a minimum number of people that you need to kind of get vaccinated for, for this to work, basically, right? To, to achieve that like herd immunity that we talk about. So... I guess the World Organization, World Health Organization, and all these other governments have got a big problem in terms of like how do they tackle 
vaccine hesitancy? How do they convince people that they need to do this? Yeah, absolutely. And I think our best estimates for coronavirus at the moment are probably between 60 and 80% of people to ensure herd immunity. Now, it's worth saying that we actually don't know that the public health strategy would be giving the vaccine to everyone. It might be like the flu vaccine, where you actually only give it to the most vulnerable people. Um, And certainly, at least in the early stages, it seems from the UK's approach, that we would probably prioritise giving the vaccine to, uh, um, you know, people, you know, that fall into those at-risk categories. But in terms of the you know, overall uh, picture, I spoke to Heidi Larson, who leads the vaccine, conf- the vaccine Confidence Project, which is that report I talked about right at the top of the section. And she basically says that traditionally public health authorities have always treated vaccines as an issue of access, right? Which is kind of how we talk about it at the moment, right? How do we scale it up quickly enough? How do we produce it? How do we get it to the right people? Um, who's going to deliver it? But Broadly speaking, they've been really good at solving those problems, and that's why polio is really only a problem in countries like Pakistan and Afghanistan, although we might see that become worse now. But Larson's whole argument is saying that actually we need to be up, get much better at these kind of, you know, what you might call softer skills, right? At reassuring people, at getting them on board, and improving overall confidence in, in vaccines. And the problem is, is that right now, vaccines are, as I said right at the beginning, they're really super you know, centre stage, and these are influencing what people think about vaccines. So when the government talks about hoping that vaccine will be ready in September, which is quite an ambitious timescale, to some people, that just sounds like it's way too fast. Um, and it leaves all kinds of questions open, like I've been mentioning. So who's going to get it? Will it be mandatory? You know, how will it be given? And Larson's whole argument is that she preferred the public communication around this was much more um, flexible and open. So rather than saying, look, we're absolutely powering forward for a um, vaccine in September and if it's out, we'll kind of get it to everyone. Maybe they should say, look, we're aiming for this. We'd like to get it as soon as possible, but we really don't know. Safety is going to be our prime concern. And I think that there's kind of this problem in the kind of public conversation around vaccines is that we think all of those things are implied, but for a large group of people, they're seeing, um, oh, it's going to come out in September and there's big companies making it. And, and they, they see that as a threat, whereas to us, that might be reassuring. To other people, it might be reassuring. We've got the anti-vaxxer movement and out of that maybe has come this vaccine hesitancy Um, group of people who don't have the same extreme views but have concerns about vaccines and there's an awful lot of stuff as you say pumped out across Facebook and Instagram and Twitter that gives people seemingly scientific evidence to back up their beliefs however extreme they might be what we've maybe never had is a pro-vaccine movement to counteract those um, conspiracy theorists and vaccine hesitant people is this an opportunity to really extol the virtues of vaccines and show how important they are to running a successful and healthy society well exactly because we're actually in this kind of rare situation where perhaps if we have a vaccine we might be able to say look this was the key that enabled us to get out of lockdown this was the key that enabled us to get the vaccine up and running and after all if we'd had a vaccine to this you know for this in the first place we wouldn't really be in lockdown, right? We wouldn't have, have had this economic disaster. So there's this kind of hope that maybe we'll end up with having a generation of people who saw vaccines as the key to you know, getting, them, getting them out of this kind of global uh, chaos, as opposed to at the moment where it's kind of a, a momentary childhood inconvenience. And actually, people think they can drop it because it doesn't seem that important. At the moment, we've really got all this focus on how important vaccines are. And that people that are, you know, kind of quite optimistic about this, they think that hopefully this could, you know, reframe how we see vaccine and kind of bring some of those people, you know, 
back over to the you know the more pro-vaccine side. So I do think there's lots of hope here, but it's very much up in the air, and it all matters about how we communicate it and how it's kind of talked about in our you know public conversations. It's a really fascinating story that shows a lot of the nuance that it isn't just people that believe, as Matt said, that Bill Gates is going to infect us all with microchips to shut down our organs, that there are people with very legitimate concerns about the health, particularly of their children or maybe of themselves, that are in this vaccine hesitancy group. And as we were talking about herd immunity and needing to get a certain percentage of people vaccinated against coronavirus, this will be a problem that health authorities will have to deal with in the coming months and potentially years podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else we talked about on the show this week and as with everything we'll include a link to the story in the show notes our third and final story natasha is about the pubs it's true as we are all painfully aware pubs have been closed since the start of the lockdown at one point during the process we were told that they might not open this entire year, which was a depressing prospect for everyone um, in the UK. But now they've been penciled in for a July the 4th return, which is the earliest that they can open under the government's current coronavirus strategy. But it would be um, an error of a two metre rule, a distance which, according to the British Beer and Pub Association, would mean that only a third of all pubs in the UK could reopen and it would slash their internal capacity by 75%. And it's these disastrous numbers which have led to the industry body basically lobbying for the distance to be halved. They're saying one metre should be enough. Um, many of the really small, beautiful, tiny pubs that we have in tucked away corners of the country would simply not be built with enough space to allow people to um, to come in at that kind of distance and, and still be uh, obeying the orders. So uh, this, this week we spoke to the owner of the Drunken Duck, which is a pub that has proudly looked over the fells of the Lake District for decades. And Seth Barton, who owns this pub and an on-site brewery, basically gave us an, an inkling as to what's been going on throughout this lockdown. She said that she had to pour 4,500 pints down the drain since lockdown started. And she said to us, as it stands with social distancing measures, her bar can't survive. So that's a very, very sad thought, seeing as it's got a load of history. And, and this is, to give you an idea, her her pub was basically, on a busy night before lockdown, could have been packed with sort of 70 people ordering around 300 pints. And now, that you know, after these social distancing measures are introduced, it would be around 13 customers, um, which is not, it's not going to make ends meet. That's, it's impossible for, for a lot of pubs like hers to think we're going to be able to open just simply based on numbers alone. So can you talk me through what my pub experience will be? So say July 4th, everything goes ahead as planned. Do I just roam around town and then look through the window, say, oh, that pub looks fairly empty. I'm going to, you know, rock up there and, you know, order a pint at the bar. What's it going to feel like from a, you know, from a punter's perspective? I think it's safe to say that the era of pub crawls for now is completely over you can't just show up at a pub and expect to get a pint you know you have to plan ahead so things are going to be a little bit strange basically pub goers should expect a similar kind of restaurant style booking so you should book ahead Um, you might be greeted at the door by someone who would explain what's going to happen when you walk inside where you have to go and how you have to proceed to get your pint Um, there might be a one direction flow of people so you might be asked to go in through one door and go out the other door um, and have signposting within the pubs. Uh, but, but you can also expect a lot of uh, all of these old school pubs to become from, you know, from night to day, basically a lot more tech conscious. So 
pubs are working with app companies to explore ways that customers can book pub slots uh, to help manage numbers. So basically you would say, just the same way as you'd reserve a table, you'd call up your local pub and say, I'd like, I want my birthday party to be here at this time. You'd do the same and you'd have it allocated one hour to have as many pipe, pints as you can based on that one, one direction system <laughs> going to your table over and over again and perhaps um, doing it in a safe way. And, and your local pub might limit the amount of time that people can spend there. Um, but it's obviously up to each pub to determine how they're going to you know, sort out capacity. You might have pubs that say we want to prioritise our local people, uh, our people that we've known for years and years and years, they'll be able to reserve spaces before anyone else. You might have pubs that are a bit more ad hoc. So um, w- one of the options that the BBPA has put forward is at la carte, which is um, tailored to the hospitality sector and it can be white labelled, which means that pubs can have almost like their own individual app that allows them to slot book and pre-order seats um, based on social distancing rules and pre-order their drinks, which would mean that obviously if you change your mind, you can't do that anymore that's not going to be possible you but you can repeat orders uh, on the app and you can minimize the need for bar service so this would avoid those huge crowds that we get which obviously everyone kind of loved and added to the atmosphere before coronavirus at the bar you wouldn't get those cues anymore you wouldn't get those sort of side to side shoulder to shoulder uh, waiting for your turn any longer things would sort of be brought to your table um, and and you would have to download this app ahead of your visit and plan basically which pub you're going to depending on, on which one it is you'll have to download one app or the other so like major major chains like Weatherspoons and Green King have already developed their own apps but they are far from the silver bullet for this industry because they need an internet connection and that's no issue for a lot of big city pubs but a stable connection is really hard to find in some rural establishments uh, which are some of the most charming pubs you might find in the UK. So um, what, what we've been seeing at the moment is basically that that rush towards adoption of, of tech, saying we've got to plan this out, we've got to make sure that we can encourage people to come in a safe way. A lot of pubs are worried about their locals and their customers being concerned about you know being in this establishment, especially in the inside of it, um, in closed doors, and they're trying to make people more comfortable. So what we've seen so far, um, out of all those measures, even before the July uh, the 4th kind of lifting of these restrictions, is takeaway services. So uh, we've, we've seen a lot um, of, of pubs that have decided to say, okay, just the same as restaurants, and some pubs have been issuing food, we can issue you pints, and you can stand on the street and enjoy them in the sun. Uh, so we spoke to Gareth Kerr, which is the owner of, of Cafe Kick in Clerkenwell, who describes it as basically a subsidy in lieu of government grants so they've said you know a lot of the government support that they have had is, is basically over um, or they haven't been able to have it in the first place he said it's not a viable business but it gives them a sort of fighting chance to keep treading water until there's a vaccine there's a problem with a lot of the solutions that pubs are trying to put in place is that no two pubs are alike right so when we say inner city pubs have very good in well often have better internet connections than rural pubs well that's true but a lot of inner city pubs are smaller than my front room country pubs obviously have big country gardens and there should be a lot less issues with people getting pissed in the great outdoors while the sun still shines so they've got all these various solutions but as you say none of them really allow them to run viable businesses and it gets even trickier when you look at another staple of the british country pub which is slightly expensive badly cooked food pubs rely on that to make money they don't make an awful lot of money off their drinks 
So what's it going to be like in those restaurant areas? Are we going to see plexiglass screens and all sorts of other weird things that restaurants are grappling with at the moment to further destroy the atmosphere of the good old country pub? Yeah, so, so plexiglass is a, is a bit of a no-no for a lot of owners who are saying, you know, not only is it the ugliest thing and it would be really kind of jarring for a lot of the customers that come in, but also it just doesn't necessarily work. So you've got a lot of pubs that have a lot of history. These are pubs that have been, buildings that have been around in the community for, for hundreds of years that have narrow uh, bars that are made of wood that don't have any kind of notion of what a, a normal sized pub would, would necessarily look like if we built one now anyway. So a lot of them are saying that if we built in plexiglass, first of all, there wouldn't be any space for anyone. Second of all, it would get in the way of everything and it wouldn't necessarily solve the issue. People would just gather behind the plexiglass glass and again a one-way issue um, if, if you want to create corridors where someone goes in and goes out that's all well and good if you have two doors a lot of pubs just don't so they're going unless unless you somehow figure out a way to kind of um, let them out a side door let them out the kitchen there's just no way to do that in a safe manner so uh, I don't think a lot of the things that we're seeing restaurants do where they try to isolate people by containing them is necessarily going to work in, in pubs um, at the moment uh, what, what, what they're doing about the sun Sunday roast is, is something really different because you're right they do get a lot of money off of food uh, some pubs do do a good Sunday roast I, I will actually you know attest to that but um but what they're saying is basically that they're trying to rethink that so uh, the Sunday roast you normally go with a big group of people a lot of people go with their families it's like a ritual and uh, that's just not going to be possible any longer so some pubs have said we're going to have tables of two and those tables of two are going to be you know separated just the same as restaurants are saying two meters distance and pubs are accepting that this is going to mean a lot less money for them as well so one pub owner told us that without large group bookings they're going to be doing about 40 Sunday roasts instead of 100 and they may need extra staff on the door and for table service so that means again less trade and more costs for pubs who are already on the brink. Um, I have a question and also a bonus fact did you know that plexiglass is a brand name like Hoover it's uh, it's not a, a word it's literally that it comes from the com- name of the company. I did not know yeah. that's good fact. Yeah, fun fact. Um, so I'm obviously an avid user of the Weatherspoons app but not all customers may feel the same. They might not want to uh, kind of download an app. You know, that guy, that old guy you see propping up the bar may not be a smartphone user, may not be able to book ahead or want to book ahead. So this isn't going to work for everyone, is it? No. So uh, a lot of the older uh, patrons of pubs are basically their bread and butter. And the pub owners that we've spoken to care really deeply about their older customers who are used to going there really frequently, who like to sit at the at the bar for hours and hours on end and have a chat and get to know them and they know them really well and they, they feel like there's they are part of sort of the reason why they're there. They're the sort of cornerstone of the community and, and a lot of them may not like using an app to schedule their regular pub visits. It's not really logical to say to someone age ninety five who's used to going to the pub every day, oh you have to book in a time from eleven thirty till three so that you can sit in your little corners you've done for the last 20, 30 years. It's 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 very strange thing to, to ask them to do. And more importantly, a lot of those the people in that age group have been isolating for some time now. So at the start of lockdown, a lot of people over 70 were told, stay at home, you know, you shouldn't be going out, you're at risk, uh, you shouldn't you shouldn't be interacting with people, you should try to, you know, maintain yourself isolated. So they've been in, in isolation for some time now and telling them you might not be able to come into the pub because we don't feel it'll be safe for you is a huge blow for a lot of people who who've 
perhaps been looking forward to this more than anyone else. And and this if these people are told that they're barred in favour of other people who are able to use apps, it's really really unfair. And it, it does that that fact doesn't sit well to with with loyal pub owners because they're they're so important. Um, it's so important for them to to have a sort of presence in that local community and and for people to feel welcome. And it's become part of their routine. So, uh, but, but there is a silver lining here because just the same as Wi-Fi is an issue in country pubs. The sheer number of people um, that go to pubs is very different in cities versus in the countryside. So a lot of those local communities that have, you know, local older people that rely so much on, on their pub visits are not typically overwhelmed with massive amounts of people. So uh, that these 27,000 nationwide pubs are, are blessed you know with beer gardens and they can be open soon and a lot of that extra capacity can move outside if uh, if basically climate crisis carries on and things start getting hotter and hotter in the summer people will be willing to sit outside so we, we spoke to one infectious disease epidemiologist uh, from nottingham university called keith neal and he said that rural pubs have lower footfall and outdoor spaces which could be open quite easily with minimal risk so he was saying my village local could fit 20 socially distanced customers in there and we rarely see that many anyway so a country pub in the peak district is going to be very different from your weather spoons in derby that's that's basically the only small silver lining we're all fans of pubs yep. fair to say um but we also all live in a fairly large city is anyone in a massive hurry to get back down the boozer or does it seem like a completely alien concept right now i really miss it <laughs> Yeah, me too. I well, I don't know. To me, I'm like, if it's nice weather and I can get some pints and go sit in the park with friends, I quite like that because I do like a nice beer garden. And in the winter, I mean, that's when it's going to be an issue when it's the winter and you need to be inside and it's kind of nice and cosy in a pub. And you know, it's kind of cosy and kind of sweaty when you mix out with the Fremont virus. <laughs> that sounds horrible. But if I can get pints and go in the park, then I'm okay with that. Or like a nice beer garden. I think that's so. That's that sounds. I'll settle for that. And I think kind of this whole discussion that we've been having about the pubs reopening is viewing them in the summer months, right? We've all got this vision in our mind of sitting in a pub garden for for a few nights over the, or more than a few nights over the, the summer. But when the nights start drawing in and it gets colder, how long are people going to be willing to stand outside under patio heaters? And again, that probably presents more problems because then you've got awnings and, and stuff and it's no longer outside. It's sort of half outside inside. So there aren't really any good solutions here, particularly for small inner city pubs, right? I would be advocating for the three hour lunch break in the middle of the day uh, so we can go to the pub where it's still sunny. Yeah, we could uh, we could adopt a more French model and uh, take a take a longer break in the middle of the day. Now, listen, a lot of uh, people listening to the podcast will be in countries that have got the lockdowns more under control and pubs and bars are opening um, with mixed success. Podcast at wired.co.uk with how your country's handling this or if you're in a country that's still under lockdown and you're dying for a pint from uh, from a bar. Uh, let us know your thoughts on heading back to those sort of establishments, pubs, restaurants, bars. Are you keen or a bit like Matt Reynolds, do you like the idea of maybe getting a drink takeaway and, and sitting in a park where you can still feel safe and socially distanced? Podcast at wired.co.uk. Time for a couple of your emails now. Natasha, Ewan has been in touch. That's right. So Ewan is a primary school teacher in China. Uh, and he said, 
uh, that ba- he basically wrote to us and, and told us about his experience relating to the article last week that we spoke about on the podcast about uh, holidays in China and how that might help to give us a view into the future about what we can expect in the UK this summer. He said, actually, what you said about the May break didn't actually re- ring true with my experience. He says that he and his friends had originally planned to go to Japan, but ended up booking a uh, trip to Shanghai instead. He said, possibly I'm still just a little annoyed at missing this trip at the last minute because where I am in China feels quite safe at the moment. But I just thought I'd mention travels not widely being encouraged in many areas still. He says, it's been hinted that similar is likely to be the case in summer, which is disappointing as going home now seems very unlikely. This this is really interesting because he's mentioned basically a, a point that we put across last week, which is that depending on where you are in China, there are so many different local rules that people are being told to obey. So some regions in China have decided it's okay for you to travel absolutely come along, no problem, our levels of deaths are low, our levels of infections are low, it's all okay. And other places, like the places where where Ewan has been trying to go, they've said, no, we don't want you to go there. So it it does kind of um, dampen the prospects of people in the UK, seeing as we're behind the curve uh, compared to China, going on holiday this year. So it's it's a little bit depressing. Sorry to hear that, Ewan. Um, And hopefully we'll be able to go on holiday at least somewhere this year. It shows that our new normal will be far from normal for quite a long time. Matt Reynolds, we've also had an email from Volker. That's right. So Volker wrote in about challenge trials, which if you didn't uh, listen to last week's podcast, this idea that uh, you'd infect healthy people with coronavirus as part of a vaccine trial. Now Volker says, I found it striking that in the challenge trial discussions, the focus was all about the risk when the potential benefits are arguably global and immense. Uh, the ne- then the next section was about spaceflight, which according to Google is much more risky and the potential benefits are less clear to me. I wonder why that is. Is there something about risking death by disease that makes us more hesitant? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I, I think I, I would agree. I think that spaceflight definitely is more risky than uh, you know being infected with coronavirus if you're a young, uh, healthy person. But um, yeah, I, I think that's it, it is interesting. It, it all depends how we kind of size up risk. But um, yeah, I, I like uh, raising that point. Don't have a good answer, but good to consider. <laughs> the the amazing SpaceX launch that uh, we're referring to there. There is always something quite odd about seeing two human beings essentially strapped to the top of a warhead being blasted into space it just doesn't feel comfortable somehow yet has become not commonplace but something that we just sort of look at on a youtube stream and go huh that was cool and don't think about the enormous complexity and the thousands and thousands of man hours that have gone into making that happen which i guess is the same for a coronavirus vaccine eventually we're pretty much all going to have one and maybe not think too hard about how enormously complex getting it together was or maybe we will because we've spent the best part of two years potentially by the time we get one uh living a very very abnormal life thank you very much for your emails as ever we really like getting them podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch with us we'll leave it there for this week don't forget to sign up to the wired podcast pub quiz head to tiny.cc forward slash wired quiz two to register your place it's taking place on wednesday july the 1st at 8 p.m London time via Zoom. Head to tiny.cc forward slash wired quiz to to register. We'll leave it there for this week and see you again next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye.
from PRX.